Hi, my name is Oliver DeMille, and our topic today is an introduction to Thomas Jefferson education. So this is for people who are new to homeschool, or new to TJ Ed, or professional educators, teachers, professors, who really want to learn some powerful keys about the science of great teaching, and even more than great teaching, great learning. Because great learning is really the goal. Great teaching is just the way we hopefully get there. To do this, I want to spend most of our time talking about the seven keys of great teaching, the seven keys of great learning. But first, what are the other major models that are incorporated into TJ Ed? When we say Thomas Jefferson Education or TJ Ed or Leadership Education, and we tend to use those interchangeably, what are we talking about? Well, first of all, we are talking about the seven keys. We're also talking about the four phases of learning and doing education in a way that it works to the place that the student is right now, not one size fits all, but a personalized, individualized educational model that treats seven-year-olds in a way that's ideal for seven-year-olds, and 13-year-olds in a way that's ideal for 13-year-old learning, and 16-year-old, and so on. You see the point. So we've got the four phases of learning. We're covering that in this convention in another audio, in another workshop. And we have the seven keys, which we'll hit here. And we also have the five habits of truly successful, very effective homeschoolers and any educator. And the five habits are vital. They're essential. Again, we're going to cover that in a different workshop. The four phases are essential. We'll cover that in another workshop. In this workshop, we're going to emphasize the seven keys of great learning, of great teaching. In fact, these seven keys are the most important thing to know about education. Because if you get these seven keys right, education flows. It's effective. You can help the students really thrive. You can help the students just really flourish in their learning. Now, to kick this off, let's start with three major systems of education. The conveyor belt model of learning, the private or competitive conveyor belt model of learning, and the leadership model of education. These three types of education are the most used in the history of the world and the most used in modern society today. But they have different goals, different objectives, and therefore they have different curricula and different systems or methods of teaching and helping young people learn. Let's start, and we'll go through each and compare them. Let's start with Conveyor belt education. What is conveyor belt education? Well, conveyor belt education was established, it's been established a number of times in history. As societies become more technologically advanced, they tend to want more and more workers in the economy. And so they look at the masses and say, what if we got all these people working for us? What if we got all these people boosting the economy as employees? Now, at some points in history, they've said, we'll do it through slaves. But the better, more advanced societies knew that there was a better way, saw that there was a better way to do it than slaves, which caused serious problems in the society, economically, politically, not to mention just from a humane level. And so they said, let's get more people working for us. That means we need them to have a different level of training, a different level of education. We need them to read. We need them to write. We need them to be able to do basic calculation. We need them to 
obey orders from their superiors. We need them to be on time to work. We need to be able to train them in rote information and have them remember it and use it as they do rote tasks in the factory or wherever else they're doing the work. And so conveyor belt education, historically when it's come along, has always been those in the upper class looking to expand their economic effectiveness and helping set up through the governments or through private sector organizations some sort of educational model that will take the uneducated masses and prepare them to be effective workers, thus boosting the profit margin at the top for the upper classes. Conveyor belt education, because the idea is to take as many workers as possible and get them up to basic levels of literacy, have always emphasized the basics, reading, writing, arithmetic, rote memorization, doing rote tasks effectively, being on time, following orders, and doing what your superiors tell you, being obedient. And so the conveyor belt model of education historically has always been set up in a way that taught those lessons, some overtly, like reading, writing, and arithmetic, and some covertly, like the other lessons that are there, like obedience and being on time. Not that they aren't you know, the kids aren't told to do it overtly, but the parents aren't told that that's really one of the key lessons that their kids are being taught. And so conveyor belt education, its major goal or its purpose is to train people to have basic literacy at the level that they can get a job or go into some sort of personalized technology training, a tech school or a trade school or an apprenticeship, or that they can go on to college, give everybody the basics so whatever they decide to do after their learning as youth, they can then have what they need, the foundations, in order to go on and do the rest. And that has led to a number of things like the grade levels. If you're trying to train a bunch of masses to get the same basic thing so that they can then be used by employers in the job market, then you need them all to have certain things. And so you start them off with the most basic, first grade, and these are the things everyone needs to get, and then they go to second grade and everyone gets the next level, third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade, and it's like the student is going down the conveyor belt, first, second, third grade, being fitted with the parts by factory workers known as teachers along the way with the certain part that they need in fourth grade and then seventh grade and then all the way up so that they are a finished product ready to be sold to the job market so that they will go in, work in the factories, work in the high-rise offices, work in all the various types of jobs, that benefit the upper class. It also benefits the workers because they have jobs and the standard of living increases, but the standard of living for those who hire them and use their work to create huge profits is even higher. And that's the way it's historically been done in the conveyor belt mode of education. Another thing that's been part of that, to separate those who are good from a managerial standpoint from the others who are more suited to the following orders and just doing the job, they had things like college. And so you have to give grades to the younger people so that the experts can separate. These students would be good as a worker. These students would be good at this other kind of work. Oh, and those students would be good as managers. And these students, they really excelled. They'd be good as professionals. So we'll take them not only through college, but through professional training. And the whole thing is a conveyor belt structure that's designed to teach young people how to effectively qualify and get jobs and do jobs so that the economy of the elites is benefited and their income, their prosperity, 
and their profits increase. Now, if that sounds like too negative of a tone to take, because I kind of, I mean, I took the one side of it. On the other hand, understand that this has been really positive wherever it's been applied in history. It's been really positive for a bunch of people who were able to move out of the lower classes, the masses, into the middle classes. And so it's not all negative. It's not entirely a problem. But this is the fundamental reason that those at the top have been willing over time to fund so much of education. And then eventually, as they create a middle class, they're able to use tax law and tax policy to get the middle class to fund most of that kind of education for the masses. And then those in the elite classes can spend even more of their money and their effort and their resources on increasing their profits. Now, if that sounds too cynical, just understand that that is the reality of the way it worked in history. Can a person still benefit from that by being part of the conveyor belt system? Absolutely. But let's understand why it was actually set up. Let's understand that historically, when those in the upper classes and the elite classes have said, let's support this kind of public school conveyor belt model with everybody getting the same kind of education in the same grades so that what they're really getting out of it is job training or prep for college, which is additional or more advanced job training for managers and professionals. That's what they were going for. Now, not all public schools have been conveyor belt schools in history. For example, the American founding schools that the Framer generation supported and really got behind and believed were really important, these were schools that were designed to train leaders. They weren't about the conveyor belt. They weren't focused on grade levels. In most cases, each student was able to, when they'd start school in the fall, or when it was usually in the fall, because a lot of the communities were farming communities. It was after the harvest that now during the winter, the kids had more time to study and didn't have to help with the family chores or the, you know, the chores of the merchants who also had kids in the farming communities. Because of that, it started in the fall, all the kids would come together, and at the beginning of class, the beginning of the school year, the teacher would ask questions and talk to them and give them some quizzes and get a sense of where each student was. And if a student was on a sixth grade level in math, then that's where they would start, no matter what age they were. And if that same student was in a third grade level in reading, but in a ninth grade level in their understanding of history, then they would start each of the major subjects, each of the major topics, right where they were. And the teachers, who worked more as mentors, would work individually with the students, and they weren't so caught up in, well, you're this age, so you must be this grade, because it wasn't really conveyor belted. Another thing that the early American schools did, and early Canadian schools did, was they didn't emphasize pre-structured textbooks to train the masses in what to think. Instead, they read the great classics. It was one of the major areas of focus of the early American schools that they wanted every citizen as a youth, before they were citizens, to read the same books and talk about the same ideas and have the same educational background that senators would have, that congressmen would have, that judges would have, that the president would have, that the heads of companies would have. Because that was the way that you had a truly democratic republic, a truly democratic society, when everybody had the same basic education. So that's how the early public schools in America were set up. And to ensure that they stayed that way, the early Americans established school boards that were made up of parents, a group of parents from the local area, and parents would take turns serving on this board, and they would oversee any teaching and the curriculum and everything 
mainly to make sure that the quality was there, that great classics were being used, and that the young people were getting the kind of education that would prepare them to be a senator or a president or the head of a company or a mayor or a governor or anything else in the society. So when we're talking about conveyor belt education, we're not necessarily talking about public schooling. In modern times, most public schools do follow the conveyor belt model of education, but there are exceptions. I've traveled, I've spoken at, I've attended classrooms in a number of schools, public and private, charter, around the United States, and some in Canada, and my experience with all of them has been that in almost every school, I've never seen an exception, if I stayed there long enough to really see what they had, I've never seen an exception where they had several teachers who really saw their role as training the leaders of the future, who were really fantastic teachers and taught using these seven keys. They didn't always call them by this. They didn't know that that's what they were called in many cases, but they used the seven keys of great teaching and of great learning. They used the classics. They used great ideas, and they saw their role as helping train leaders in the same way that the founders wanted the early American public schools to be set up. Another key feature of conveyor belt education, wherever we find it, in public or in private schools, Conveyor Belt Education emphasizes textbooks as the center of their curriculum. So it's textbooks, it's worksheets, and workbooks, which is kind of a combination, a halfway point between worksheets and textbooks. And these are books that are written on a given subject by not necessarily the experts in that subject, but educators who have an expertise in that subject who are trying to teach young people in a certain grade level the specific things that in mass conveyor belt education everybody should know at that level. And textbooks largely are not designed to help young people learn how to think, how to innovate, how to take initiative, how to create, how to lead, how to work in teams, but rather they're designed to teach them how to pass exams. So that the whole conveyor belt model is designed on the idea that you can take the masses, anybody, whatever their background, sit them in a classroom, lecture to them, give them worksheets and workbooks and textbooks and an assignment to do, and then give them quizzes and tests after they've gone through the worksheets and the workbooks and the textbooks and the lecture, and then sort them by grade level and by assigned grades A, B, C, D, F, and GPA, grade point average, which is accumulation of their grades, sort them into those who would be better off as workers in this field, others who would be better off workers in that field, those who would be better as managers go to college, and those who would be better as professionals go to college plus professional training beyond college. And that's the way that the conveyor belt model of education has worked. And again, the fundamental goal, train them what to think so that they can get a job or career working for those who start businesses and run businesses and invest in businesses, in other words, the elites in the economy and those who are ahead in the economy, and these people get jobs as employees and work for them. So it's the upper class paying for the education of their future workers in the middle class who keep the people in the upper class getting more and more and more and keep their business moving. And it made smart business sense. It didn't make smart freedom sense for the society, however, because when our public schools, for the large part, and many of our private schools, moved away from 
the one-room schoolhouse model where the teacher was more of a mentor and let you work on and had you work on whatever subject you were working on at the level you were at instead of everybody fit into this conveyor belt mode. And when most of the textbooks weren't textbooks, but rather classics, where they were reading the great ideas and the great books and talking about the great principles that all the business leaders and all the people in the elite classes and the upper classes and all the political leaders were also getting, that was good for freedom. When we transitioned with the teachings of Horace Mann in the 1850s, and then even more profoundly, we made the shift in the 1930s based on the teachings of John Dewey, then we introduced in America the conveyor belt model, and we've lived in that conveyor belt model as the majority school environment for most students ever since. Again, textbooks, grades, grade levels, sorting into those who go to college, those who go to trade schools, those who go to professional schools, and those who just go straight into the job market, and the lecture model, the lecture and test model. Those are the major features of the conveyor belt educational approach. That's the first major system of education. The second major system of education is close to it. It's similar, but it's the competitive conveyor belt. On the competitive conveyor belt, you still have grades. You still have textbooks. But what you're really looking for is the ones who are at the top level of the conveyor belt. So you want the ones who are in the 90th or the 93rd or the 96th percentile who will become your doctors and your engineers and your lawyers and your top managers, your top professionals. And so where conveyor belt education takes anyone and everyone, and in some countries and some states almost has a law that requires everybody to do the conveyor belt education, in contrast to that, the competitive conveyor belt only takes those who can qualify. It only lets into the colleges and the professional schools or the elite high schools, the elite college prep programs. It only lets in those who pass certain tests and sometimes interviews and writing or creative samples and have the best grades and the best background. It only lets in the ones at the top. Now, once they're in the law school or in the medical school, they're very much connected to grade levels, in other words, your first semester, here's what you take, here's what, here's what you need to study, to specific letter grades and GPA so that they can rank and sort first in the class, tenth in the class, top of the class, bottom quartile of the class, and the textbook approach, which is we want you to learn this area of expertise and we want you to learn it the way the experts believe it and teach it and understand it. So it's not so much about innovation or initiative, or creativity, or even analysis in general, but it is about those things within that field of expertise. So instead of teaching the young people how to think, but better than teaching them what to think, the competitive conveyor belt teaches when to think. In other words, it teaches attorneys how to, within the law, think innovatively and creatively and analytically and take initiative and lead. And it teaches people within medicine to do the same thing, but within that field, not in the other fields. There is some rollover. In other words, people who have learned how to think in law typically know how to think better in other fields than people who have never learned how to think at all. But really, the focus of the competitive conveyor belt is about when to think. 
and a large number of private schools, of elite private schools, of Ivy prep schools, and of Ivy schools, you know, the top, the most prestigious, emphasize that kind of education. Now, they also have conveyor-built education. They also have conveyor-built learning for those who seek the kinds of majors that will lead them into middle-class careers. Those who are going for upper-middle-class and even upper-class careers tend to get educational programs that are more the competitive conveyor belt rather than the regular conveyor belt. And those are the first two major types of education or major systems or models of education. The third is leadership education. And leadership education doesn't use the conveyor belt at all. This is the type of education used by royals and the super rich down through time and others who have known about it. This is the kind of education where you have a mentor who sits down with individual students and finds out their dreams, their passion, their goals, what they want to accomplish, their life purpose, what are they really interested in, who do they want to become, and then helps build an education around the needs and the desires and the goals of that student. That's leadership education. That's Thomas Jefferson education. That's the way he was educated and the way that many of the great men and women of history have been educated. And that has a different approach. Instead of what to think, it teaches them how to think. It teaches them how to have the skills and the habits of taking initiative, of innovation, of creativity, of real analysis, of really understanding, of digging deeper. And leadership education, the principles of the things that really make it work, are not textbooks, but classics. The greatest things ever created by the leaders of history in whatever field they were, the scientists, the mathematicians, the statesmen, the business leaders, everybody, the artists, the greatest leaders in every field, whatever field it is, most of them received at some point, not necessarily in their formal schooling, but maybe they got it after, got a great leadership education in the classics and the great ideas. Now, the seven keys come into this because why would anybody settle for a conveyor belt education, or even a competitive conveyor belt education, when they could get a leadership education. And the seven keys of great learning and great teaching are the keys that the greatest teachers have used to train leaders. And they work effectively whether your student is in public, private, charter, home, university level, kindergarten, through graduate studies, and through adult training. They work in all of them. These seven keys are incredibly effective. They are the most powerful ways. They are the DNA of quality education, of quality learning. And they don't have all the distractions and the bureaucratic checklists that we often run into when we look at modern schools. For example, too much of modern education is designed to support schooling instead of learning. And that's really getting the cart before the horse. The purpose of schooling should be learning. But when the purpose of schooling is schooling, which happens a lot of the time in most modern schools, when that's the purpose of schooling is to benefit the school, then learning takes a back seat and the quality of the education decreases and over time declines in that school or that classroom or that district or that state or that country. 
That's just the reality, and it happens almost everywhere. The way to solve it, the way to get past it, is to get back to where the focus is learning. And that means implementation of the seven keys. Let's learn what they are. By the way, if you're a teacher, a professional educator in a public school or a private school or a charter school or a professor at a university or college, something in higher education, or a parent helping your kids, mentoring your kids in homeschool, this applies. All seven keys apply in any educational environment. In fact, if you're a person who teaches in a corporate setting, as a manager, as a leader, as an executive, as a trainer, the seven keys still apply. If you want people to learn effectively, the seven keys are there. It also works if you're a student. In fact, that's where it starts. That's where it's the most important. If you're a student or if your kids are students, help them learn the seven keys and apply them so that they can get the best educational experience and the best education and the best learning possible. So what are the seven keys? Because what we're really doing with the seven keys is we're applying leadership education to all three systems, the conveyor belt, the competitive conveyor belt, and leadership. And if, we're, if we excel and learn how to really master and use these seven keys, and they're not hard or difficult, when we get effective at using the seven keys, then whatever system of education we are in as a student or helping lead as a teacher or parent, we can totally excel in it. The more we bring in leadership to the others, the better the quality of the learning across the board. Here's the seven keys. Number one, classics, not textbooks, and not fluff. We don't want fluff reading that's just whatever. We don't want textbook reading that's so specialized and focused to one subject that it doesn't bring together the great ideas, that all it teaches you is rote memorization and wrote studies in a conveyor belt way. We don't want that. We want classics. What are classics? Classics are works that are worth studying over and over and over again because you learn more each time. Great books that when you read them, you learn more. The Federalist Papers, Shakespeare, the Declaration of Independence, the Bible, and go on and on and on. Jane Austen. There's so many. When we read the great classics, the reason they're great, the reason they've lasted so long, the old ones, because there's new classics being written now that are at that same level of quality that are worth reading over and over and over again, there are classics in every field, in science, in math, in history, in technology, in leadership, in public speaking, in writing. There are classics in every field, in literature, in theater. And a great education consists of reading the classics in all the fields both the ones that come from history, that are on people's official classics lists, and also the new ones that have come in the last 50 years or that are coming out in the last five years or this year or next year that are at the same quality and the same level of learning because each time we read them, we learn more and more and more. This is why the framers, the American founding generation, wanted their kids, all the kids across the nation, in little farm towns, in big cities, and everything in between, even on little farms that were far away from towns, they wanted them to read the great books, the same books that the presidents and heads of business and governors and judges would be reading. Remember Abraham Lincoln, who read by firelight the Bible, Shakespeare, and Euclid, and that was the basic foundation of his education? 
And you think, well, that's not that much to read, but he read them over and over and over again. They were the books he had, and he learned how to think, and he learned initiative, and he learned innovation, and he learned leadership, and he learned how to analyze, and he learned how to be creative by going through the same ones over and over and over again. And then, when he was able to leave home and had access to additional books, he applied those same lessons and learned so much more. That is the classics. It's the first key. Classics, not textbooks and not fluff. We read the greatest. Someone who reads the greatest books gets an education. Someone who doesn't is always, no matter what they learn, no matter how well-trained they are, no matter how many diplomas they have behind their name, if they haven't read the great books in all the fields, they're always going to be lacking something. And they won't have the same level of initiative and innovation and creativity and analyzation and leadership that they would have if they were able to come face-to-face -face with greatness, face-to-face -face with the greatest books and the greatest ideas and the greatest art and the greatest scientific experiments and summaries and the greatest mathematical learning and the greatest everything. Face-to-face -face with greatness because greatness rubs off. By coming face-to-face -face with greatness, in the greatest works ever made by mankind and by God through Scripture, a young person comes face-to-face -face with their own potential greatness, and they are different than someone who misses out on that type of learning. Classics, not textbooks, not fluff. By the way, it's okay to bring in the fluff. It's okay to bring in the textbooks eventually, as long as classics are the foundation and the focus and the center point because they always are the center point of great education, of leadership education. The second key is mentors, not professors and not just pals, but mentors. Caring, loving mentors who help you personalize your education for your goals, your interests, what you want to accomplish, help you fill in the gaps where you have weaknesses, and help you turn your strengths into life purpose and life mission and really make a difference. Mentors really matter. Mentors are incredibly effective. See, the professorial model, the professors, their system is the conveyor belt or the competitive conveyor belt. They follow the system of lecture, give an assignment, hand out a test, and then grade and sort students so they can go to whatever level they should go to work for elites, to work for the upper class. That's the professorial model. And if you're a professor, just be a great Seven Keys professor. Because there are so many people who are professors, who are teachers, professional educators, who apply the Seven Keys in public schools, in universities, in charter schools, in private schools, and they do such a great job of training leaders. And when you use the Seven Keys, it doesn't take away from conveyor belt learning. It just turns conveyor belt learning into something bigger that includes the leadership portion. It doesn't take away from competitive conveyor belt, managerial and professional level education. It just takes those into even more leadership, into better learning. This is why the super rich, royalty, the elite classes, the upper classes have always had their kids educated by mentors and tutors and often by themselves in the great classics. And they use the read and discuss method, not the lecture and test and grade method. So, Classics, not textbooks or fluff, 
mentors, not professors or pals. You can bring in the pals, you can bring in the professors, but make sure that the center part of great education, because this is always what makes great education, the center part of education is mentors who use the read, 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 and discuss, discuss, discuss method instead of the lecture and test method. Look, the lecture and test method has a place, but its design is to sort people into what kinds of jobs and careers they should have. Whereas the mentorial approach, the leadership education, the off-the-conveyor-belt approach, that's all about training leaders, its focus, its purpose, is to find out in what ways that individual student can do the most to make the most difference and truly live his or her life purpose and serve the world and to help him get an education that will match that mission, that will match that life purpose. Every student you've ever met has genius inside. And an educational system like a conveyor belt that forces those people with genius inside to fit into some other system where their genius may or may not come out is going to hit and does hit in our modern system about 20% of the population effectively and then about 80% gets a mediocre or poor education. But really great education doesn't do that. It realizes their genius in every student and it builds a personalized, individualized educational model with mentors and with introducing that person with genius inside to the greatest classics and the greatest ideas that have ever existed down through history. And it helps them come face to face with greatness and therefore face their own greatness and reach for truly quality education. That's why we call it Thomas Jefferson education, because it's Thomas Jefferson level education. Could have been Abigail Adams education. Could have been Shakespeare education. Could have been Da Vinci education. But it's the education that will match their personal mission in life, which is a mission of genius, of real purpose, that will make a huge difference in the world. So classics, not textbooks or fluff. Mentors, not mere professors or pals. The third key is inspire, not require, and not neglect. Inspire, not require. Inspire, not neglect. So, first of all, nobody thinks you should neglect your students and just, you know, not do anything to help them get an education. So the battle is really, should we require our students to do a certain thing? And that's the conveyor-belt approach. Sit down, be quiet, take notes, listen to the lecture. We're going to test you later. Do the assignment. We're going to test you later. We're going to teach to the tests. Those nationalized tests will sort you for the upper class to decide how to use you best in our society based on their test score on an SAT or an ACT or an LSAT or an MCAT or whatever. The INSPIRE model that's non-conveyor belt realizes that most of modern education is built on two myths. The first myth is that it is the job of teachers, it's the responsibility of teachers to educate the students. Almost like teachers somehow have the ability to just pour in to the student's brain all the information, all the knowledge, all the skills and all the habits that they're going to need to have a successful education and to thrive and flourish in their life mission and their work and whatever they're supposed to do. And it just doesn't work that way. It is not the responsibility of teachers to give a young person an education because they can't. It's impossible. The only person who can get a quality education is the individual student. 
the individual student decides how much study to do, how much time and effort to put into it, how much he or she cares, and how much he or she is going to pour himself into really learning and really making it happen. Only the student can decide to get a superb education. Every single person who ever got a great education eventually decided to do it and did the work and made it happen. No exceptions. That's the first myth, that it's the job of teachers or parents to educate kids. It's not. It's the job of students to educate themselves. And as soon as they know that, and the sooner they know it as young people, the better because they can embrace their responsibility and get started and learn how to do better and fail and do better and fail so that by the time they're 14, 15, 17, they're past all those failures and they're really engaged and have the responsibility that they've taken upon themselves and they're working hard and learning voluntarily because they choose to and they're going after a great education. Now the second myth is that it is the job of teachers or parents to educate the youth. And that sounds like the first myth, but listen to the rest of it. It is not the job of parents or teachers to educate the youth. It is the job of parents and teachers to inspire the youth to educate themselves. Do you see how those two myths work on each other and feed each other? If the parents and teachers think that they have to pour the learning into the kids, then they will never teach the kids that it's their responsibility to do it, not the adults, not the parents, not the teachers. It's the kids' responsibility to do it. And if they're so focused as parents and teachers on teaching, 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 giving assignments, grading, assigning grades, looking at report cards, telling the kids they did bad or they did good, badly or well, if they're, if they're so busy focused on, well, we got to make them learn. We got to learn. We got to learn it for them. We got to do it for them. If they're so focused on that, they forget to inspire. And when teachers and parents forget to inspire, and they don't even tell the kids that it's their responsibility to get their own education, guess what happens? The large majority, about 80% of youth, never realize that it's their job to get the education. If they don't get a good education, they blame it on their teachers. They blame it on their parents. They blame it on the school they went to. They say, well, if I'd have gone to a better school, we lived in a town where I, the schools weren't that good. Well, what does that mean? If you didn't get a superb education, it's not because a school wasn't good. It's not because a teacher wasn't good. It's not because a parent wasn't good. They might not have been good, but that's not the thing that determines whether you get an education or not. It's whether or not you are a good student and you apply yourself and you go for it. Now, here's one thing that teachers and parents can do that is hugely effective in education. Inspire inspire young people, especially in the teen years. Inspire youth, teens. Inspire them to fall in love with math, to fall in love with science, to fall in love with history, to fall in love with Shakespeare, to fall in love with whatever it is that you feel they need, that you're helping them get or that they passionately are interested in. Or if you're helping them go across the curriculum, help them fall in love with learning and fall in love with each of the topics that they need to learn about. Show them by example and sit down and ask yourself, what does Johnny need in order to be excited about math? What does Mary need in order to be just excited and passionate about Shakespeare? And then brainstorm ways and help 
deliver those in a way that gets Johnny and Mary and all their other kids in your home or all the other kids in your classroom passionately, and it's going to be individualized for each one of them, but get them all passionately inspired about education. There is another workshop in this convention that's all about how to inspire them. That's all about getting them just thrilled and inspired and totally into it. So make sure you listen to that one. It's entitled something like, How to Exponentially Increase Your Teen's Inspiration to Study, or something like that. Has exponentially increased their desire to study and learn. Make sure you listen to that one about how to inspire. But understand that one of the seven keys is understanding that A, it's your job as a parent and teacher to help the young person understand that it's his or her education and that he or she has to take responsibility for getting a great one. It's not the job of schools or teachers or coaches or even parents. It's the job of individual students to get a superb education. Now, make sure you listen to the workshop on the phases because that doesn't start at age three. It doesn't even start at age nine. But by the time they're teens, they should understand that it's their education to get a great education, and they're going to get exactly the level of education that they choose to, regardless of the school or the teacher or the parent. However, a good teacher or parent or school understands that the role of the adults in helping young people get a superb education is inspiration. And so they can make a huge difference by effectively and consistently inspiring Johnny, inspiring Mary to get a superb education. It is the job of parents to inspire, not to require and not to neglect. See, it's important that we have both of those because for years, the way that I taught this, the way that we taught TJ Ed in the Seven Keys was inspire, not require, and we left it at that. We didn't say inspire, not require, and inspire, not neglect. We said inspire, not require. And a lot of people coming off the conveyor belt, because that had been their own educational experience for the most part, many people, what they heard was, well, if you don't require them, I guess you're just not doing anything. So what they heard was inspire and let's neglect them. Let's leave them alone. But listen to this. Think about this. Which is more challenging, to neglect or to require? Which is more challenging for the teacher, for the parent, to neglect the kid or to require the kid? Well, clearly, it's a lot harder to require them. You don't have to do anything if you neglect them. You just ignore them and forget they exist. But here's the real kicker. Which is more challenging, to require them or to effectively inspire them? Answer? It's always harder to inspire than to just give them an assignment and walk away and then grade them and say you're a good student, you're a mediocre student, you're a great student. The require method is easy for the teacher and the parent compared to the inspire method. For the inspire method, you have to sit down and say, why isn't Johnny inspired? Why isn't Johnny? He loves literature and he loves history. Why can't we get him to engage math or science at all? Or vice versa or some other thing that's personal to Johnny. And so great mentors learn how to inspire and they focus on being incredibly effective inspirers. Great teachers inspire and they teach the young people that the young people have to get their own education and then great teachers don't just teach the young people that it's their responsibility to get their own education, but they inspire them to do it. 
And they do it in different ways. They do it according to their personality and their interest. Think of the best teacher you ever had. Why was he or she the best teacher? Was it because she loved you? Was it because he, you could tell he really cared? Was it because he really pushed you? Was it because he was so in love with his topic, with the subject, that it was infectious and you just got interested? Or was it a dozen other things that great teachers do? Do all of them. Think of the greatest teachers you've ever had and use those to inspire your youth. Teach them that their education is up to them, that they're going to get exactly the education that they choose to get, regardless of everything else, and then go the extra mile and inspire them consistently. Week after week after week, inspire them to pursue that great education and go after it. Obviously, don't neglect, but also don't get so caught up in requirements that there isn't inspiration. In fact, sometimes requirements are the most inspiring things for certain students. I think of some of the coaches I had in sports teams who had stringent requirements. Now, me being there and being on that sports team was totally voluntary. It was totally up to me. But once I volunteered and agreed to it, if I didn't follow the rules, I didn't get to stay on the team or I didn't get to play. So there is a place for requiring. But in our modern conveyor belt model, we tend to way overdo requirement, just like we way overdo lectures and tests. Lectures can be a valuable part of education if they're followed up with discussion, discussion, discussion. Testing can be a valuable part of learning, as long as we don't build the whole education around teaching to the test. And then the test becomes the whole thing, and it's about schooling, not about learning. And it's about fitting into where the upper class can hire us instead of getting a great, superb education where we can go out and use initiative and analysis and, and be our own leaders. And the best employees are the entrepreneurs who are able to use all those leadership techniques in a job. So leadership education applies no matter what the goals of the individual student are. These seven keys make education better. Apply more of these keys and you will see education, whatever classroom, whatever setting, whatever type of school, whether it's home or whatever, you will see it improve. Remove any of these seven keys and you will see it go down. This is reality. Inspire inspire, inspire. That is the real role of parents and teachers and coaches in education. The fourth key of great learning and of great education is quality, not conformity, and not contempt. See, so often what we end up with in modern, in the modern conveyor belt approach to education, is we teach conformity, not really quality. People get the A because they got the right answer and they showed their work instead of because they really, truly understood the concept and can do it six different ways. Quality, not conformity. And the way to teach this is as a mentor, as a parent, reward the quality you see whenever you see it. And if they don't do it quite the way you taught it, it's okay as long as the quality is there. Teach them that their education is their responsibility and that quality in learning is the goal, not just conforming. Conformity is about 
cramming for the test and getting the good grade, the good score, and then not remembering it. Quality is about learning it so well that not only can you ace the exam, or if, even if you don't ever have an exam, you still remember it 30 years later and can talk about it in depth and add to it everything you've learned since. Quality is the key in education. The next key, the fifth key, is structure time, not content. See, the conveyor belt, because it was trying to train the masses all at the same level, like a boot camp, the conveyor belt model set it up where they taught content, not time. So, from 9 to 9.50 was English, or language arts, then a 10-minute break. From 10 to 10.50 is math, whatever it is for that grade level. And everybody in the classroom has to do it, even if they're way behind or way ahead. But they have to do the same thing. And then there's the 10-minute break, or the recess. Then from 11 to 11.50 is history, and it just goes on and on and on for the whole day. There's a structure of content, but not a structuring of time. And most people, when they decide to homeschool, because all they've ever known is public school, and that you know, structured conveyor belt, structure content way. All they know is they come home and they set up a homeschool and they set it up, well, from 9 to 9.50 we'll do language, and they just follow it. They copy the system. Over time, if they get good at it, they learn that you don't do it that way. You structure time, not content. What does that mean? It means that the young person, the scholar phase student, and again, listen to the phases so you know what that means in detail. The teen, the 15-year-old, knows that every morning he or she is going to be studying from 9 to 4 or from 9 to 6 or whatever it is for the individual student. Again, it's personalized. And it's going to start out with fewer hours and then build, you know, from a 12-year-old up through an 18-year-old. And he knows that he sits down and he has this study time. What does he study? Well, he has some guidelines that he's worked out with his mentor and his mentor is meeting with him every week and making plans for his studies. But the mentor knows that he is responsible for his own education, meaning the student is responsible for his own education, and the mentor, the adult, is inspiring him to do it. And they work together and they talk together each week, and they discuss what, what the student's going to do. But then the student has a pile of books. He has a list of things he's working on. And when it comes time to study, he can sit down and he can work on math, he can work on science, he can work on history, he can work on language arts, he can work on whatever he's working on. And if he wants to transition in 15 minutes to something else, he can. Or he can spend the whole day on that and then work on other things tomorrow. Or he can spend three days on it and then work on other things later. Or he can just spend a little bit of time this day on each thing, one after another. Or each day he can switch it up. Structure time, not content. This brings a lot more excitement. And again, this is leadership education. It allows the student, instead of being told to sit down and do what you're told, he learns to decide what he wants to do to schedule his own content within the structure that he's agreed to, the time that he's agreed to. So he's putting in the time to get the education, which is vitally important, but he has a say, he gets a say over what he does with that time, which is what most adults do unless they're in a rote job. And most adults have a lot of say in how they do it and what order they do it and what they get to do. And learning those skills of making those decisions is really powerful and really important. Structure time, not content. It really works. It works for adults too. As you're reading the classics, structure time and have a, your list of books that you're going through 
and do them when it's time for you to do your study for your hour a day or your three hours on Saturday or however you set it up. Sit down and do the things you really want to. You'll find that you have more passion and more interest and more excitement while you're learning. The thing that happens when you structure time, not content, is that the epiphanal rate goes up in your studies. What does that mean? An epiphany is when you have an, an aha, a wow. You're excited, you're learning, you're in the flow, and you're learning this stuff. A high epiphanal rate means you have four or five epiphanies in an hour or more. A low epiphanal rate means you read for three hours and you don't even have an epiphany. That's no fun. People who structure time, not content, and then during the time they can study what they want to, their epiphanal rate goes up significantly, sometimes exponentially, just because they have a say in it, and so they're studying the thing they're interested in. And overnight, they're thinking about it, and then when they come back to it, instead of having to do some unrelated assignment where the epiphanal rate is low, they can focus on the thing where the epiphanal rate is high. When our epiphanal rate is high, we get more out of it. We learn more. We get more excited, and so we study more, and we learn even more. And it builds on itself. It snowballs, and it's very effective. The sixth key is simplicity, not complexity, and not chaos. This is really important. Simplicity, not complexity. The more that we've gone in our country, in our society in modern times, the more we've gone to advanced, complex, intricate curriculum, the worse the education has gotten for more students. Go back to the old one-room schoolhouse model where the student sits down and studies. Read, 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 and then there's discussion. Discussion with teacher, mentor, parent, discussion with other students, peers. Read, 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 discuss, discuss, discuss. What do you read? The greatest works, the greatest classics of history and of modern times. What do you discuss? The things you were reading. What else do you do? You look at art and you discuss it. You attend a lecture and you discuss it. You work a project in science or a proof in math and then you discuss it. Read, 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 discuss, discuss, discuss. That simplicity creates great education. Take the read and discuss out of it and you have chaos and that's not as good. Put a bunch of complexity into it and guess what happens? The more you have curriculum and curriculum models and different classes that you break and go to and different clubs and different assignments and different extracurricular activities. The more you do that, the less students read, read, read. The less they read, read, read classics and the less they discuss, discuss, discuss. Go back to simplicity. It trains great minds. And the student in his or her own study time, because you've structured time, the content, they can fill it in with all kinds of things, things they bring into it and things that their mentor helps them and suggests and brings into it. They can bring in other things that are more complex, but at that point, it's just a fun thing they brought into it. It's not required. It's not pushed. It's not demanded. It's just something they voluntarily brought along. So the epiphanal rate's going to be high and they're going to learn from it. Simplicity, not complexity. And the seventh key is you, not them and you, not nobody. What does that mean? It means that they need an example. You want them to get an education, a great education, set an example of a great education. You 
Show them. Don't just tell them. Go to school. Study these books. Do this assignment. Pass this test. Get an education. No, show them. Show them you studying the classics. Show them you reading, 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 and discussing, discussing, discussing. One of the most powerful ways to do this and to bring all of these together is family reading aloud. Reading aloud makes all the difference. It's so incredible if you do this as a family, where you start when they're young. By the way, if you're starting now and your kids are older, you can start there. But, you know, most kids are little before they're big, and if, if you have kids who are still little, start reading aloud. Once a week is powerful. Three times a week for 15 minutes in the evening, incredibly powerful. You don't want to go much more than a half hour, at least until the whole family is really into it and is begging for it. Start out with something that's 15 or 20 minutes or even 10. And don't do it every night. Do it three nights a week. Do it four nights a week. But when it happens, when you're reading aloud, guess what's happening? Pick classics. Pick age-appropriate classics. And so if it's they're really young, then you're doing Dr. Seuss or the Bernstein Bears or, you know, Are You My Mother or Emma's Pet or all the, the little children's Read them, show them the pictures, and stop and discuss. Talk about the picture. Don't just read it, wrote. They're not on the conveyor belt. You want them to be leaders. They have genius inside. Stop and discuss and talk and get what they have to say and listen and then add what you have to say. And then as they get a little older, when they're eight, when they're nine, they're hearing other books. They're hearing books like Little House in the Big Woods. Books like, I mean, there's so many. And we have so many classic lists on our website you can go look at in the T.J. Ed book, Thomas Jefferson Education book, and other books that we've put out. There are, you know, the teen book, for example. There are reading lists that are specific to different age groups. Use those, use those lists and then add your own. One thing that you have to remember in all of this, and it's part of you not them, and you, not nobody. You have to remember that you are the expert on your family. Nobody else is the expert on your family. The local school counselor, if they have something to add, great, take their input. But you're the expert, they're just giving input. You're the expert on your family. God set up families with the parents in charge, not with the community in charge, or some teacher assigned by the state in charge. Teachers can give input, but you're the parent. You're the expert. You're the best expert on your family. And if that scares you, get more expertise. Get enrolled in the Mentoring in the Classics audio series where every month you get an introduction to a great classic that's you know short and is usually by me and some of the other TJ Ed mentors, but usually me and, and Rachel. And we share some introductory things about a classic and tell you what to look for while you're reading. And then you go read it that month. And then at the end of the month, you get a debrief audio where we talk with a team of TJ Ed mentors and, and also youth who are in scholar phase and younger who are in love of learning and sometimes even some core phase people. And we talk about great education. We talk about that book and we, and we discuss it. And we talk about what we got from it and what we didn't. It's so easy for you to get a great education now that the Mentoring in the Classics program exists because all you have to do is listen to those two audios and read that book each month and you will be on the path of a great education. Now, if you already have a great education, then this takes it even deeper and broader and makes it even better. 
you, not them. And let me say it this way. I've said it this way many times. Not only are you the expert on your family, because you are, but if you start doing this right now, then five years from now, you will have a superb Thomas Jefferson level quality education. I mean, you either will or you won't. But if you do this, you will. And here's the really powerful thing. If you do, then your kids are going to get it with you. They'll see the example. You'll be that kind of mentor. You'll learn how to do it. You'll interact with them. For some of you, it's natural anyway. But most of us can use a help because the design of the MIC program and the classics that go with it is to help inspire you to get that education because it's all about inspire. Classics, not textbooks, not fluff. Mentors, not professors and not pals. Inspire, not require and not neglect. Quality, not conformity and not contempt. Time, not content and not ignore. Simplicity, not complexity and not chaos. And you, not them. And not nobody. Set the example. Embrace your role as the expert on your family because there's nobody on earth who's a better expert on your family than you. Especially since the whole point of leadership education is to personalize the learning of that young person. That person in your home has genius inside him, genius inside her. And nobody knows that better than a mom or a dad. Look into his eyes, look into her eyes and see what you see. And then help inspire him or her. Teach him that he's responsible to get a great education and that nobody can do it for him. Nobody can educate him. He's got to educate himself. All great education is self-education, all of it. And then... Don't just leave him on his own. Yes, it's his responsibility, but help him, help her by constantly, effectively and consistently inspiring him through your example because it's you, not them, and you, not no. You. Set the example of a great education by you reading books and listening to audios and learning, 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 and sharing what you're learning with your young people, especially your teens. You will love you will love your education. It will be fun. It will be effective. It will be consistent. And it will work. Those are the seven keys. You show me a school at any level. You show me a teacher at any level who applies these seven keys and all of them effectively, and I'll show you a great teacher. You show me a teacher who's mediocre, and they might apply one or two of these. You show me someone who's a poor teacher, and they either don't apply any of them or they just don't do them very well. You show me a great teacher or a great school, great educational system, and I'll show you someone who uses classics, mentors. They inspire. They focus on quality. They focus on time, structure time, not content. They focus on simplicity, not complexity. And they set the example, and in addition, they teach and they show and they help. That's great education. And by the way... If you ever feel overwhelmed or stressed or, wow, this is so much, how can I possibly do this? Forget the complexity, forget all the other things, and step back and look at these seven keys. Whenever you're overwhelmed, it's probably not that you're doing too much or have too much on your plate. It's almost always that you're not doing the basics as well as they deserve to be done. Because when you're doing the basics really, really well, whatever the basics are, if you're doing the basics really well, then you're not going to feel overwhelmed because you're going to be having success 
you're going to be making progress. It's going to be effective and it's going to be working. The basics in education, whether it's in homeschool or any other kind of school, at any level of learning in any topic or field of education, the basics of education are these seven keys. If you're ever overwhelmed or stressed, step back and see which of these seven you could do better at. Is it classics? Is it mentors? Is it inspire? Is it quality? Is it structure time, not content? Is it simplicity, not complexity? Is it you setting the example and getting your education? Sometimes you get overwhelmed by trying to give all the kids their education when the best thing you could do is focus a little more on you getting a better education, on listening to audios, doing readings in great classics and great ideas, having discussions, and all of a sudden the kids see that and they get more inspired and they get more into it because they see the example, and all of a sudden you don't have to do all the other kind of work because they see what you're doing. Whenever you find yourself not getting the results you want, whether it's because you're overwhelmed and stressed or it's some other reason, maybe you've been really busy or you're distracted or you haven't felt like you could put the time in, whatever the roadblock, whatever the challenge, when you find yourself not quite getting where you want to, take a step back. Sit down with a pen in hand, get a blank page in front of you, and ask yourself how you personally can do better on these seven keys. Which ones are you absolutely nailing? They're so good. You're just It's just awesome how you're doing. Those are great. Put a check by them. Which ones are you really struggling in? Which ones can you really do better? And then pick one or two. Don't try to do it all at once. Pick one or two and brainstorm how to really improve that one and then do it this week. And as you do it, you will almost always see the roadblock just melt away. If it doesn't, keep going for the next week. But eventually, and usually sooner rather than later, it will melt away and you will be accomplishing the goals that you want to. The success is in the basics and in education, in learning, at all levels and all topics and all systems. The basics are the seven keys. Every great teacher, whether they call them this or not, every great teacher is using some of the seven keys. That's what's making them great. Or they're taking a few of them and doing them so well that they're great teachers. The goal is to do all of them and to do them all as well as we can and to improve on them over time. Classics, mentors, inspire, quality, structure, time, simplicity, not complexity, and you. Set the example, lead out. This is leadership education after all. You're the expert on your home. What does Johnny need? Sit down, get a blank piece of paper, put Johnny's name at the top, I'm assuming he's your child or your student or both, and ask, what does Johnny need the most this week? What can I do? Not what should Johnny do. You're not looking for an assignment. Could be an assignment, but don't approach it that way. Ask, what can I do that would help Johnny? What does Johnny need the most this week? What could I do that would help him? What's the number one thing I could do that would help him the most this week? Write it down and then do it. That is a powerful educational tool. There's a name for it in English. The word is mentoring. That's what mentoring is. You sit down with a blank piece of paper, you put Johnny's name at the top of the paper, and you ask yourself, 
what is the number one thing I can do for Johnny this week that would help him the most? And then you do it. And if you've still got some of the week left, sit down again and say, what's the number two thing I could do? And then do that. And if you've got time, do three. But always do one. Week after week after week, with each of your children, what is the number one thing I can do for Johnny or Mary or Jane or Bobby or whoever this week? Brainstorm it. You know, maybe you have to brainstorm five things and then narrow it down to the one that you think is the true number one and then deliver that this week. That's mentoring. That's you, not them. And it's also simplicity, not complexity. The seven keys work. Now, we've only scratched the surface here. We only had an hour. I went, I, you know, I went past an hour, but we had time in this hour to introduce TJ Ed. TJ Ed is the five habits of successful homeschooling, successful education in general, because it applies in all settings, the four phases, and the seven keys. And the seven keys are the central part of the DNA. The seven keys matter. Do these seven keys, and you will see yourself get better and better and better at them, and better and better and better at your own education, and better and better and better at mentoring your kids, your students, and their education. The seven keys work. And whenever you find yourself not getting the quality you want, step back and ask yourself. Have a list of the keys in front of you. What is it that needs more? Do you need more classics, more mentors, more inspire, more quality, more structured time instead of content, more simplicity, less complexity, more example, more focus from you to get your own education? That's you, not them. You, not nobody. The seven keys are great education. Do them and keep doing them, and you will see education in your home, in your classroom, get better and better and better. That's great education. That's leadership education. That's TJ Ed. And let's be clear. Your children have genius inside. They have a unique life purpose that can make a real difference in their life and the lives of others. They can live their best life, but they need an education to match their mission. That's what TJ Ed is all about. And it starts with the four phases the five habits, and the seven keys. Get going. Learn all of those and apply the seven keys. Apply them, apply them, apply them because your kids were born to do great things. They weren't born to do mediocre things. They weren't born to do low end. They were born to do great things. Now, great is different for different people. Great means that they live their individual life purpose. They don't have to be charismatic and be on television to be great. That's a modern definition of greatness that's just not true. Greatness is doing what's yours, what's theirs for their kids. Greatness is them living, truly living, their authentic life purpose, their best potential to its fullest. The thing that will help them do that almost more than anything else in life is to have a true quality education that matches their potential, the potential of their life purpose, their life mission. And that means the seven keys. Learn them, study more about them in the TJ Ed book, in the TJ Ed for Teens book, and in the Phases of Learning book, all written by myself or myself and my wife. 
and all about how to help these young people who are in our homes, who are the greatest resource on the face of the earth because they were sent down here. And if they live their full missions, they're going to change the world in ways that nothing else will and make the world better in ways that nothing else can. The most impact on the future of the world is going to be young people who actually live up to their full potential. Nothing else will improve the world the way that will. That's powerful. That's in your hands. And those kids live in your home. Give them great education that matches their mission. The way to do that, simple. Apply the seven keys. Learn more about them, apply them, and you will see them live their potential and live up to their greatness. And, and relax and have fun with it. Smile and relax and have fun with it. Thanks for our time. You can do this. You're the expert on your home. You're the leader. Leadership education is where you lead. The seven keys will make all the difference. Apply them, use them, lead out, and help your kids live up to their mission.